Amen. This is God's word, and it is powerful and amazing. Let me uh, introduce myself. Thanks, John, for that. Uh, my name is Nick Lapara. I live, at least for the last three years, uh, my family and I have lived in Tacoma, Washington. We are part of the first Soma Church. Uh, not that that makes us any better. We're kind of crappy. But we are the first of the Soma churches. Uh, Soma Tacoma started 11 years ago by Jeff Vanderstelt in uh, his small team there. So, yes, my name is Nick. I have a wife, Becky. We've been married for seven years next week. Uh, thank you. It's been amazing and incredibly hard. All you married people, you know what I'm talking about. We have three kids. Solus is three, Bell is two, and Roman is one. You heard correctly. We had three kids in three years, uh, and it's been incredibly amazing uh, and incredibly hard, but more amazing than hard. Um, I wish they could be here with you so that you could meet them. They're definitely all my better half, um, but you're stuck with me, so I'm super excited, um, and I'm excited about this passage as well. Um, Vince, Kenny, were both mentioning over and over again uh, how difficult it was for them to give up this passage, uh, because it is quite incredible. It really is just, a, it was a gift to go through it. It was a gift to remember the gospel once again. It was a gift to remember Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and what we are to do to attain that, and how we're going to pursue that. So it was a gift, and thank you for giving up this incredible passage that I get to talk to you guys about it. If you need a Bible, we have some here. Um, if you need one for this morning, if you don't have one, it's our gift to you. Uh, does anyone not have one that I can take to you? Sometimes it's awkward, like, get up and come here to the front. I'd be glad to pass you one if you don't have one. Most of us have it on our phones. I'm actually terrible this morning. I have it on my laptop. I usually speak from an iPad, but my wife's laptop got stolen uh, a few weeks ago, and so she's using the iPad as her laptop right now. So, MacBook Air as my Bible this morning. Thanks for being generous to me in that. Uh, warning, tons of scripture this morning that is intentional and very much okay, because we believe, uh, we approach every day and this day believing that every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped for the tasks God has for us. So I make no apologies for the amount of scripture that we're going to read today. So I'm very excited. Let's uh, give thanks to God one more time for this day, for this opportunity that we get to share and uh, learn from God's word and the Holy Spirit who is very present here today, speaking to you, um, either as his child or prodding you toward joining the family. So he's here speaking and he's super real, and I'm excited that he's here. So let's pray and give thanks. Jesus. You are so incredibly good to us. Yes. We are so incredibly blessed to... We know that the church is not four walls and chairs and all that. We know that very well. We know that we are the church. We are the people of God sent on the mission of God to fulfill us, your purposes in the world. But we also value these times together, that we get to come together from all over, in this case, San Diego, come together to celebrate how you're working in our lives, to sin under the teaching of the word of God, to sing incredible songs. You are our good father. Yeah. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And we are incredibly loved by you. That's who we are. Yeah. You're a good father. We received that love, and we're so incredibly thankful for it today. We want to humbly approach 
this subject matter. We want to humbly approach your scripture. I don't presume to know anything more than anyone here. I don't presume to be anyone better than anyone here. I'm your servant. We're your servants. We want to approach your scriptures like that today. So we love you because you first loved us. May that truth go deep in our lives. We love you because you first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So John was generous to read uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. I'm going to read it again in a different translation, in the message. I don't know if you guys have explored the message at all. I like to use it on occasion because it speaks very practically. Uh, Don't use it for exact interpretations from the Greek and Hebrew, but it has been very good for my family and I, even with my daughters. I read the message sometimes. It's very helpful, very explanatory. So we're going to go ahead and read that again. Um, You probably don't have that with you, so I'm going to read it for you. Uh, Just listen, take it in as we read Philippians 3, 1 through 11. And that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praises as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know that, even though we can list what many might think as impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I thought were once so important are now gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ, Jesus is my master, firsthand, everything I thought once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get it, if there, was, if there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Wow. What an incredible set of good news scripture. I read that in the message uh, a few days ago and yesterday and this morning and was just incredibly blessed, blown away in my strength 
and trust in the grace and salvation of Jesus was deepened and enriched once again, that is good news. If you can, read that every day, and it will give you hope. I hope. If you're, if you're Christ's child, that will give you hope to get through the day. That will give you hope to resist temptation. That will give you hope to love your wives and your husbands and your kids well. That will give you hope to go to work and not work for that boss primarily, but for the real boss. That will give you hope to get through the day. That's amazing news. First things first, I want to, uh, before we get to the three points that we're going to briefly address this morning, I wanted to focus a bit on verse one. He says something really uh, interesting, I think, there. He mentions that he's talked about this before, and like the message says, he says, better safe than sorry. So he addresses that he's clearly talked about it before, and he says, that wasn't enough. I want to make sure that you really, really, really get this. And he starts off this passage by saying, rejoice in the Lord. So I don't want to move on too quickly from this, and I hope you don't either. Uh, They knew what he was talking about, Uh, but maybe you don't. Um, So I'm going to read a few scripture passages that encourage us in that command, right? So he saw fit to do it again. I think we could take a few seconds to do that this morning. So Romans 5, 2 through 5, I'll read them through pretty quickly, but I think they give some context for why he didn't spend a lot of time here. He just said, rejoice in the Lord. Then he went on to talk about his pedigree and all that and how we should... um, forget all of that and just trust and pursue Jesus. But he adds this little thing in there. So I thought that was really funny. Let's go and read a few passages. Romans 5 through 2, 5. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Some pretty powerful rejoice statements there. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it is so much so that it has become known throughout the world through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that are in my imprisonment, that it is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he talks about his time in prison and how God's using that in a weird way to advance the gospel. And at the end of that, he's suffered a ton. He's been hurt. He's been downtrodden. Who knows how long he's been in there? Not a ton of people staying there to support him. And some are preaching the name of Christ in order to to, uh, defraud what he's been saying. And he ends it with, I rejoice in that. Lastly, Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So I will end that little piece just reminding us of all the ways, all the contexts, and this is not all, there are many more, but I won't uh, read all of those this morning, all of the ways and contexts in which he spoke the words rejoice. Rejoice with me, rejoice in the Lord. There was a lot of pain and hardship, weird things going on. Life wasn't great for him. His businesses weren't flourishing. He wasn't making a ton of money. And he still said, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So let's move on, not forgetting to rejoice in all things. It's important to remember and see why he opened up that way. Real quickly, I want to give us the opportunity to do that for 30 seconds to a minute. I want to stop and ask you, in which ways are you rejoicing in the Lord today? I'd love some like verbal feedback if you have it. Because he said to do it, right? Yeah. So why would we move on and go on to different things without stopping to give at least an opportunity? Yes. Anyone else? We woke up. Amazing. Let's rejoice in that. Yeah, just to build on that, more ways to get more done. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. He never, changes from his he never changes from his holiness. Rejoice in that. Yeah, we get to rejoice as God's people that we get to draw so close and near to his presence because of the redemption that Christ has purchased for us. Rejoice in that. He's bigger and greater than you thought. Absolutely. I'm going to share a passage today that will hopefully continue to blow our minds in that direction. He's way bigger and greater than we could ever think. Every single morning. It's amazing. Anyone else? I don't want to rob you of the... Yes. Hope in him, yes. Yes, it's a living book, right? Every piece of scripture, God-breathed. That's huge. No other book on planet Earth is God-breathed. Some reflect the gifts that he's given us. We've got talented writers writing and expositing scriptures, and that's great. And we've got fiction and all sorts of genres, but no other book on planet Earth is breathed out by God. Rejoice in that. That's amazing. Oh, one more. Super faithful, doesn't cut in and out. That's amazing. He doesn't choose which days he's going to be faithful, right? Like today, you're acting terrible, you're not behaving, so let's come back tomorrow and try this again. I'm going to leave you in your rebellion for a day or so. He doesn't do that, does he? That's amazing. So rejoice in the Lord always, but we're not staying there, so let's keep on going. Um, the, the name of this talk is In Pursuit of Our Holy God. Uh, we're commanded to passionately pursue God. That's very evident in this scripture. Um, so does that mean that once we uh, find him, that we stop pursuing? Because that's typically what we do, right? If I'm looking for something in my house, 
um, or trying to find a destination on you know, my IMAP or whatever, once I get there, the pursuit is over, right? right, right. Hey, Solis, you're, you're missing something. She's always losing things in my house, my three-year-old daughter. So I, like, she, she like, half can mumble out what it is or remember what it was, and she's like, I think it was here, and it's always in a different place. And so we go all over the house looking for this one shoe, this princess shoe that's missing, or this, and it could be anywhere, right? She could have put it in her backpack where she hoards all of her stuff or down in the playroom. And so we look for it, but then when I find that shoe, it, we rejoice, and it, the, the pursuit is over. Is that how we should be in the pursuit of God? No, this is something that uh, we've found, or, or rather, he's found us, and we continue pursuing. This is a lifelong endeavor. He's found us, but the pursuit isn't over because he's the only being in the universe that is infinite. Because he's infinite, he's infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely knowable. That means we can never figure it all out. We can never get to the end and say, I figured God out. I've reached the end. This is amazing. I can stop pursuing him now. That's never going to happen, friends. So in this pursuit, um, I want to read a, I want to, as we continue this pursuit, I want to read a few uh, quotes to that effect. A.W. Tozer in the pursuit of God he says, to have found God is, and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Scorned by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. When I read that, I spent several minutes considering whether or not I would fit in the category of children of the burning heart. Am I, is my heart burning in this pursuit, right? Matthew Henry also adds to this conversation saying, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. Now we can replace grace with any attribute of God. Where there is true love, there is a desire for more love. And so that's how this pursuit works. We experience some of it and we want more of it. Then when we get to that next level, that deeper level with this holy God, we want more of it and more of it and more of it. This pursuit doesn't end, friends. One of the Valley of Vision prayers, I don't know, if, have you guys ever read the Valley of Vision Puritan prayers? Wow. I've read through that several times as part of my, as part of my you know, whatever time of the day prayers. They're very powerful. I don't know why most of us can't write like this anymore. It's really, they crafted together some really amazing phrases and thoughts that really have penetrated my heart many, many, many times. One of them goes like this. My dear Lord, I can but tell thee that thou knowest I long for nothing but thyself, nothing but holiness, nothing but union with thy will. Thou hast given, I forgot to tell you that some of them, like it's really weird and old English, but you'll get the picture. Thou hast given me these desires, and thou alone canst give me the thing desired. Get that? He puts something inside of us that only he can fulfill. He's not going to send us elsewhere. Hey, you actually want that, Nick. You actually want that. All the desires he puts in us point back to himself. Is that good news or what? My soul longs for communion with thee, 
for mortification of indwelling corruption, especially spiritual pride. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. What a blessedness to be like thee as much as it is possible for a creature to be like its creator. Lord, give me more of thy likeness. Enlarge my soul to contain fullness of holiness. Engage me to live more for thee. Help me to be less pleased with my spiritual experiences. And when I feel at ease after sweet communings, teach me that it is far too little I know and do. When I have these intimate moments with Jesus... Lord, help me not to leave those times and say, cool, that was enough. But give me a deeper sense so that I'll go back to that well over and over again. Blessed Lord, let me climb up near to thee and love and long and plead and wrestle with thee and pant for deliverance from the body of sin. For my heart is wandering and lifeless and my soul mourns to think it should ever lose sight of its beloved. Wrap my life in divine love and keep me ever desiring thee always humble and resigned to thy will, more fixed on thyself that I may be more fitted for doing and suffering. So this pursuit will continue from now until we get to the new heavens and the new earth because, excuse me, there's more to be found and because we are far too easily distracted and pleased. Yeah, right? Two reasons this is going to be a pretty interesting and amazing pursuit, because there's infinitely more to know, and because we're constantly getting distracted. C.S. Lewis said it this way, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we are like uh, children, ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Do you get that? We're playing in the mud, the, the, we're making mud pies when we've been offered this incredible holiday by the sea and we're so satisfied with that. That's crazy, right? So that's why this pursuit is lifelong. He's infinitely knowable and we're infinitely distracted. It's going to make for an interesting. Uh, pursuit, I think. So the three things we're going to address today are what does that pursuit look like? What is this pursuit going to look like? And obviously this is not an extensive study. This is one passage of scripture, but we have a ton to learn from it. And I'm excited to explore it for a few minutes with you. I did not start a timer. So someone just flag me, wave me down um, when it's time to shut up. <laughs> what does this pursuit look like? Number one, you're not that great. Asterisk, down at the bottom, apart from Christ's saving and sanctifying work. But point number one is, you're not that great. Point number two, our holy God is that great. And three, expect to suffer as you get to know this holy God. You're not that great. God is that great and expect to suffer as you pursue this holy God. We'll go back to verses three through seven for this first point. For we have a circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I always thought that was incredibly... Because you think of Paul as like this humble, apostolic, amazing leader, right? And he is, all of that. 
But right here, he kind of makes like a weird, this arrogant boast. If you think you're awesome, I'm awesomer. <laughs> like your credentials, not as cool as mine. Oh, you have one PhD, I have three. Right? Like that's what he's doing here. He says, if anyone has comp, you think you have comp, you think you have reason to boast, I've got more. And then he goes on to explain what he means, and he really does. Like, he's a really killer Jewish dude, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, which was an elite, as the message pointed out, an elite tribe, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was a pretty prominent leader, and he knew it, right? But then he goes on to say some pretty amazing words. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of those things that I'm good at, all of those credentials that I have, they're nothing in view of this pursuit of Christ. I want to gain Christ so badly. This is such an amazing thing. Nothing else matters. What are you good at? What are your credentials? How many degrees do you have? How much money have you made? How are your businesses doing? How much do you, this one's a little different than the other ones that he said. How much do you read and memorize a scripture and how much do you pray? Wait, aren't those good things? You don't think Paul did that? They memorized more scripture. They memorized more of the law than anyone in this room, than any of us ever will be able to. They memorized books and books and books of the Bible. You don't think they prayed? They prayed a ton. That was all lumped in with being a Pharisee, being a keeper of the law. That was all lumped in there. So I must add something like that in there. How much do you read and memorize the, read your Bible, memorize it, and pray? Because those things, if not coming from a heart, of wanting to pursue God, those fit in that category of things that must go in order to pursue Christ. Paul did all these things as a Pharisee and still didn't know or pursue God. How could the Pharisees miss it? They read the law. They defended their faith and godly living. They respected tradition. They called the people to obedience. They sought to be pure. They rejected worldliness. They kept the highest standard of living and were at the synagogue so very much. Eugene Peterson, whom I love, nails it when he says, imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a lake with a grand view of mountains beyond. Snow-capped mountains, beautiful mountains. You have a ringside seat before all of this beauty, the cloud formations, the wild storms, the entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors and the rocks and the trees and the wildflowers and the water. At first, you're just captivated by this view. You sit and you stand and you look and you admire. You catch your breath. Several times a day, you interrupt your work and stand before this window just to take in the majesty and the beauty. And then one day, you notice some bird droppings on the glass. You get a bucket of water and a towel and you clean it. A couple days later, a rainstorm leaves the windows streaked and the bucket comes out again. One day, some visitors with a tribe of small, dirty-fingered children come, and the moment they leave, you notice there are smudge marks all over the window. 
They're hardly out the door before you have the bucket out again. You're so proud of that window, and it's such a large window. But it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision, distracting from the vision. Keeping that window clean now becomes compulsive neurosis. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding outside and one inside. You have to get all the difficult corners and heights. You end up having the cleanest window in North America. But now it's been years since you've looked through that window. You've become a Pharisee. That's how someone with such a godly appearance, doing such godly things, can have it all wrong. So that's how Paul could take all of those credentials and put them in the trash, count them as dog dung, in comparison to this pursuit of Christ, in comparison to gaining Christ. Yeah, they obsessed so much over the law that they ended up missing what the law was pointing to, right? That's obsessing over this window and forgetting to look through it. How many people have kids here? How many people with, I, I have kids, three of them, and how many of you with kids have or had rules and direction in your home? I do. Not a bad thing. Even at two and three years old, my daughters already know and are learning how things go in our home. We have rules and order. The point of those rules and order, we do this so that we can better care for each other and better love each other and better serve each other. Right? That's the ultimate reason. I'm not looking for robots that just do stuff because mom and dad said so. So I don't want, we put these rules and direct, we give direction in our home, not so that they can go around repeating and memorizing the rules all day and obsessing over keeping them. They're there for a purpose. And in our home, all the serving and caring and loving each other that comes out of those rules should point them as they grow up. I pray and beg of God that they would point them to Jesus, not to are mom and dad pleased with me? Right? Did I follow all the rules? Did I put all the toys away at the right time before bed? Did I not hit my sister or not do this or not do that? Did I do these things? I don't want them obsessing over that. All the laws that have been given to us, all the, the things that are rules and regulations and were, were, were put in this, these guidelines in scripture, they're all meant not for us to obsess over them and memorize them and teach other people to memorize them, they are put in place for one reason, to point us to Jesus. One more reason why we should put all those credentials aside and pursue Jesus. Number two, our holy God is that great. Number one, we're not that great. We saw that in Paul's life. He had so many more credentials and cool things going for him. He was a big shot and he threw all that away for the sake of knowing Christ. Number two, our holy God is that great. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Webster's Dictionary defines surpassing as this, very great to a much greater degree than others. 
It's simple. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus puts him in a category apart from everyone else. We could be great in certain things. We could be good and skilled in certain things. Anything that you're great in, he's infinitely better. That's why only he, only of this holy God can be said, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He counted all those things that we talked about in point one, dung to know Jesus better. I want to read an amazing passage of scripture that I go back to. This might be the most, whenever I'm having trouble believing that God is great, whenever I'm having trouble that, believing that God is surpassingly worthy of everything that I have, I go back to this passage out of all the Bible because it gives me a, it gives me a peek into really how big he is, like how glorious he is. We're going to go to Isaiah 40, an amazing passage, and I'm going to read it in the message again. Sorry, hope you don't get tired of the message. I find it helpful in this context. So I want to read you this uh, scripture passage. So if you want to read along in your whatever translation, or if you just want to listen, just feel free to, I invite you in to this passage. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak softly and tenderly to Jerusalem, but also make it very clear that she has served her sentence, that her sin is taken care of, forgiven. She's been punished enough and more than enough, and now it's over and done with. Thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival. Make the road straight and smooth, a highway fit for our God. Fill in the valleys, level off the hills, smooth out the ruts, clear out the rocks. Then God's bright glory will shine and everyone will see it. Yes, just as God has said. A voice said, shout, I said. What shall I shout? These people are nothing but grass. Their love, fragile as wildflowers. The grass withers, the wildflowers fade. If God so much as puffs on them, Aren't these people just as much as grass? Aren't these people just so much grass? True, the grass withers and the wildflower fades, but our God's word stands firm and forever. Climb a mountain, Zion. You're the preacher of good news. Raise your voice. Make it good and loud, Jerusalem. You're the preacher of good news. Speak loud and clear. Don't be timid. Tell the cities of Judah, look, your God. Look at him. God, the master, comes in power, ready to go into action. He is going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. Like a shepherd, he will care for his flock, gathering the lambs in his arms, hugging them as he carries them, leading the nursing ewes to good pasture. Who has scooped? This is where it gets good. Just imagine this God, that good, good father that we were singing about. That's this one right here. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands? You guys are real close to the ocean. I assume you spend a lot of time at the ocean. You've seen how big the ocean is. One of them. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands? Or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? That's called a span, and that's what? Seven inches, maybe? with my big long fingers. That's the sky. He measured it with his thumb and his little finger. Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets? 
weighed each mountain and hill. Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would, it, would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God, do you suppose, might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why, the nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. Do you hear? Nations, we live in a nation, America, drop in the bucket. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon, nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it. A minus is what the translation says. A minus. It's negative. So who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can we compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold, and draped with silver filigree. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot and then hire a woodcarver to make a no-god, giving special care for its base so it won't tip over. Have you been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas. Yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the holy. Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls them each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. We'll stop there for the sake of time, but wow, right? I hope some of you at least got some, some uh, like goosebumps or your heart leapt for joy. Something should happen there when you realize that that God we just took, talked about has called and made you his own. And every day is at your 24-hour disposal to talk, to commune with, to be with him. He wants to teach and equip you to be his disciple maker and ambassador in the world. That's why it was so easy once Paul was saved by the grace of God, it was so easy for him to count everything else that he had done in life as dog dung in order to gain that Christ. This is our God. This is whom we are called to worship. This is whom we were saved from death and sin to follow and pursue all the days of our lives. This is the three times holy God that we are called to live and die for. One quote from John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life before we go on to point number three and wrap up here. The universe, they say, is so vast. 
It makes man utterly insignificant. Why would God have bothered to create such a microscopic speck called the earth and humanity and then get involved with us? Beneath this question is a fundamental failure to see what the universe is all about. It is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. And he says it for us to learn and enjoy, namely that he is infinitely great and powerful and wise and beautiful. The more the Hubble telescope sends back to us about the unfathomable depths of space, the more we should stand in awe of God. The disproportion between us and the universe is a parable about the disproportion between us and God, and that is an understatement. This is the God that we're called to abandon everything else to pursue. Number three, and we're going to finish with some really good news. We've been hearing it all throughout, but I want to finish with some good news. But before we do that, number three is expect to suffer as you get to know our holy God. So the question underlying this whole point is, is suffering expected of those who abandon everything and follow Jesus? Are we going to suffer? No one here... Uh, in our flesh, in my human state, apart from God, wants to suffer, right? right? Anyone here just have a hankering to suffer today? <laughs> Nobody. Not a one. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. All things. He doesn't say most of them. I have suffered the loss of all things. And if you read a little bit about Paul, you'll see what he meant by that. He did lose all. Prison so many times, beaten nearly to death. There's so many things that he went through. When he says all, he meant all. No clothes, no food. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share his sufferings. We're all aware that Jesus suffered on our behalf, right? Yeah. He suffered so terribly so that you could have new, abundant, and forever life. Amen. Paul says... That in this pursuit of Christ, you will share in his sufferings, and you should have, he desired to do it. It sounds like he's actually like desiring, and he must know something about suffering that we don't, or maybe we haven't learned yet, or will learn, or are learning. He knew something about suffering, and we're going to look at that in a few passages of scripture that Paul himself wrote about suffering. I don't want to make... I don't want you to hear me making light of pain and suffering in the world. I don't know 98% of you. I love you as my forever brothers and sisters, but I don't know you. So I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be presumptuous to know what you're going through, the pain and suffering that you're going through. It is very real. It is worth talking about and being shepherded in and going to the Father about and communing about it here and working through it. So I don't want to make light of it. There are many, there have been so many, in my short 31 years of life, I have seen suffering. I have felt suffering. Um, We won't get into all that today, but just recently, a couple weeks ago, I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 
And I got a real, like a real dose of seeing someone suffer, so much so that they abandon faith in God and are having a real hard time coming back to him. We met a guy at a bar that we were eating at there. And he sat down, and for three and a half hours, we talked, we prayed, we loved on him. Part of, part of this guy's story is that when he was younger, he grew, up in a, he grew up in a family that mom and dad were, said they were Jesus followers. They took a bunch of foster kids in. He himself was a foster kid. He, two things that really still to this day have him um, really doubting the goodness of God. He walked in on um, one of his foster brothers uh, molesting his sister and he himself was molested by one of the other foster brothers. And from that point on, his, whatever faith he had seen in his parents started to diminish. Here's a 28-year-old dude searching and searching and searching, crying with us, praying. Try, he literally was, he was, he was begging God in that moment to give him the grace to believe because he was like, I want to believe what you guys are talking about, and yet I've seen so much suffering in my life. I tell that story real quickly just to say, I'm not, I don't want to, discount what you're going through. What you're going through, the suffering you may be going through is real. It's tangible. Deal with that in front of the Father who is sovereign over that pain and suffering and deal with it in this community. Don't hide that. But I want, I want to real briefly read a few scriptures that point to the fact that if we pursue Christ, we will suffer. That suffering will take a ton of different faces It'll come at us in a ton of different ways, but suffering is a part of this pursuit of Christ. So it's, it seems so evident that if, if you haven't experienced suffering in your life and, and God hasn't shown himself faithful in that suffering, I would just ask God, like, am I truly following you? Am I truly following hard after you? Because life's been amazing. Nothing's gone. I have not been persecuted for my faith. And you said that suffering would come. Maybe it hasn't come yet. But just get on the same page with God and say, like, I wanna, I wanna, am, I, am I following your will? Am I doing it? Am I pursuing you? Am I putting away those credentials in order to pursue you? Because these passages of Scripture that we're going to almost end on speak to the point that there will be suffering. There will be hardships when you take on Jesus, when you pursue him with your whole heart. Real quickly, I'm going to read through them. Romans 8, 12 through 15. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And children, and, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch that? And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, that means it's going to happen, 
we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It seems pretty apparent that suffering is on its way or has come. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right there. Why, why do we need comfort if there's no afflictions? Yeah. He is the God of comfort because there will be afflictions. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. Oh, I missed the. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, now he's talking in abundance of suffering. I was kind of hoping it'd be a little bit. Like, I can take a little bit, right? But now you're talking in terms of like a lot. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. So it's not without hope, friends. If abundant suffering comes your way, there will be abundant comfort. Because he's loving father. He's a good father. He's the father that none of us can be or ever will be or could ever even aspire to. One more. Which one? Philippians 1, 27 through 30. You guys have already read through this because you're going through Philippians, but I want to remind you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now he's using weird language. It's been granted to you. Like usually you use that word in like a good context. You, here's this grant to go to school or I'm gonna grant you time to hang out with me. It's usually used in like a more positive aspect. Here he says, it has been granted to you to suffer. So Paul speaks... He's trying to take away any excuse that we might come up with it, that we might come up with to avoid it or to assume that we're not going to deal with it. He takes it all away to the point where he says, it is good for you to suffer. It is good for you. It is good for your soul. It's good for your eternal life. It's good for your sonship and daughtership under Jesus to suffer for his name's sake. We're so accustomed to reject suffering and want to avoid it at all costs. We're the most medicated society in all of history. Start to get a headache. Why not? Let's, let's not deal with why we're getting the headache, right? It might be all the soda we're drinking or the terrible food that we're eating. No, no, let's pop some pills, get rid of that headache, and just wait for the next one to come. We're so accustomed to get rid of suffering right away that uh, this, is, this might be really weird. It's weird for me to hear. I, I've experienced suffering in my life, but nothing like super real. And he's saying it's coming and it's a good thing. Tim Keller wrote an amazing book 
that's, that's, a, that's a statement that could apply for all of his books, if you've, if you've read any Keller at all. But his most recent one, I think, is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, a phenomenal book on all that Paul talked about as you look forward to going through it, how can you get through that and still glorify God, still love him, and see it as a good thing that you went through it? So get that book, but I want to read a couple. I want to I go from, there are some sobering quotes that can be pulled out of that book, but they get progressively better and better. So I'm going to read a few that are going to get better and better. So it's going to start out with a little soberness, and then it's going to become really good news. So much so that I hope that your heart, your soul, actually says, bring it on, because I've got Jesus. He said it's good for me. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Do you hear that? Suffering is unbearable if you're not 100% sure that God is for you and with you. You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's a gut-punching one-liner that just like, I've been thinking about that for days. He's not all, you don't, you can't really fully know that he's all you need until he's actually all you have. Remember Paul said, everything's been stripped away. I don't have anything else. And that's when I fully realized the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I'm not saying get rid of all your stuff today, sell everything. Suffering's going to come in a variety of different forms. For Paul, it was that. He was an example of extreme suffering. I think for um, like our millions and millions of brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering for the sake of the gospel in those kinds of ways, this is immensely encouraging to them. Someone went through it and was able to see the value, the surpassing value of Jesus. It's immensely encouraging for them because they're literally going through this. I saw an incredibly sobering video the other day um, it wasn't one of the really gory ones that sometimes go around. I can't watch those. But it was about these Christians in the Middle East that were being, they were, they were being beat, kicked, whipped, the butt of guns in their faces. And they, they would slump over and then just sit right back up. And they'd get beat again. And these guys were just kicking them. And it was, it was terrible. And it was still gut-wrenching. This speaks right to them because that's what Paul went through. Yeah. We can still take this, though. And actually, it should be easier for us to accept this good news because our life's amazing. Like, life is good, right? I, I, I don't have a job right now. And life is so, so good. We have money in our checking account. I have a beautiful family at home, a roof over my head, an amazing community and city, an amazing community and city here. Life is good. And I still long for this. However, that's going to come my way. I want to truly know Jesus and that might require losing all that I have so that I can fully see that. Are you ready for that? But resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. Did you get that? You might lose it all and you're going to get something so much bigger. It's not about him taking stuff away from you. It's about him restoring good news and good kingdom on this earth. Yeah. You'll get it all back in unimaginable degrees of glory, joy, and strength. 
the most rapturous delights you've ever had in the beauty of a landscape or in the pleasures of food or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see Jesus face to face. All the good things you have, all those credentials that Paul talked about, all the credentials and skills and things that you can do that you have, dewdrops compared to the ocean. This is what we are in for and nothing less. According to the Bible, that glorious beauty and our enjoyment of it has been immeasurably enhanced by Christ's redemption of us from evil and death. Christianity offers not merely a consolation, but a restoration. Not just in this life we have, but of the life we always wanted but never achieved. And because the joy will even be greater for all will even be greater for all that evil, that means the final defeat of all those forces that would have destroyed us, that would have destroyed the purpose of God in creation, namely to live with his people in glory and delight forever. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound, nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you, that is being cast away from God. He took that on so that now all suffering that comes your way will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into something gorgeous. Last one, suffering seems inevitable as a follower of Jesus, but something else that is inevitable is Jesus becoming great in and through our suffering. And that's an amazing thing. We aren't that great. Point number one is now good news in light of what we just read, right? I don't want to be my kind of great because that's so limited and contained to this earth. I want to lose all of that so that I get his greatness poured into me through the person and work of Jesus. Last week, I was able to preach the gospel to a young couple in our missional community, and he had never, I'm not, that's not to my credit because the gospel has been the same for all of time, but my wife and I shared the gospel with them We shared the good news that despite what they're doing in their personal lives, despite the temptations that they're giving into, despite all the ways that they felt guilty about all of that, the father looks down on them and is completely pleased. Not because of anything they're doing, but because he sees it through the filter of Jesus' righteousness. He sees us clothed in his son's righteousness. So, point number one is good news, isn't it? We're not that great, and because of that, he gets more of the glory, and he gets to look greater when we're not in the way trying to make ourselves look great. Friends, today, let us rest in the gospel that makes us, as Tim Keller said, gorgeous. Because of the person and work of Jesus, through good times, which we will have many of, and through extreme suffering, suffering, which we're told is going to come. That's good news. That suffering will produce so many amazing things. Remember what he said about the lump of coal turns into a diamond under pressure? Don't you want that? Don't you want to become more gorgeous? Not because of any gorgeousness that I had before, but because it's imposed upon me by the work and person of Jesus Christ. Paul has a lot to teach us here, friends. I'm so glad that we have the God-breathed scripture so that we can learn from it. And 
Trust in the gospel today. Trust in that gospel. Trust in that good news. We are the good news people for the world. Take that and live that out this week. Remember, these four walls, they're all weirdly shaped, but these, all these walls, this is not church. This is one expression of the church. You guys, as communities, as individuals, as biological families, get to go out and share that good news with people, that they're not great in and of themselves, that Jesus is worthy of lifelong pursuit because he is surpassingly worthy, and as they live life alongside you, may they see you suffer in a way that is attractive. People need to see attractive sufferers because they don't know how to. They get angry and pissed off and don't know what to do, don't know how to work it out. And we get to say, this is actually good for me. And that's confusing to them. And hopefully through that, the Holy Spirit will draw them to himself because the gospel is offensive, right? It doesn't make sense to them. So let's go out and be the good news people to the world, right? This is exciting news, friends. And I feel like family with you. And I feel confident that I can share this good news with you this morning. As we go to the communion table now, this is a special meal that we get to eat and drink every week. Do you guys do it every week? Yep. Every week. I don't understand churches that don't do it at their gatherings every week. This is such an exciting thing, right? As we go and take this meal together, I want you to ponder two questions. Get in groups of three or four. Take this meal together and ponder these questions. Number one, do you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And along with that, in which areas are you not submitting to Jesus? Right? Confess that to each other. Say that out loud. But don't stay there. Don't stay there, because that's not, that's not a fun meal to go to. Hey, let's get together, have this amazing meal, and we're just going to talk about all of our problems, how terrible we are. No, 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 no. Don't stay there. Confess that. Get it out with your community, but don't stay there. Go on to the second question. How does the life and death of Christ in the gospel free you from those things. There's suffering happening here this morning. There are addictions to all sorts of sins and substances here this morning. There's hurt. There's pain. All represented here this morning. What are those areas that we're not submitting to Jesus in? And how can the glorious good news of the gospel free you from those things? Because it can. Nothing you have here today is, is above that Isaiah 40 God, right? You saw how big he was, right? Nothing you bring to him today is going to surprise him. Nothing you bring to him today is he going to say, whoa, I'll have to get back to you on that. We're kind of in high demand right now. That one's a big one. <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. He's, he will take you. Yeah. He already has forgiven you. You're his child, so go confidently and answer those two questions as you go to commune together.